Again, I want to welcome you if you're new here. Uh, we're so glad you're here. And recently in our sermon series, we've been journeying through the book of Luke. And especially recently, we've been entering a section of Luke. Bram, if we could get the slides changed, um, that'd be great. We've been entering a section that really deals with the matter of discipleship, of what real discipleship looks like. And to be a disciple, in case you don't know, uh, it means to be a student. It means to be like an apprentice in a close relationship of learning. And that's what Jesus does. He calls people like you and I to follow him in a student-teacher relationship, to be his apprentices in this thing called life. And that's really the core definition of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, real discipleship isn't like an elite thing for the few truly spiritual people among us. It, it, discipleship isn't just for leaders in the church. Real discipleship is basic Christianity for all of us. And indeed, discipleship is so central to what it means to be a Christian that Dietrich Bonhoeffer went so far as to say that Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And recently in our series, we've been considering different aspects of discipleship. And this morning, we're going to consider the crucial aspect of listening. Listening. So I will invite you to open a Bible if you have one, or if you don't, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. And we're going to camp out in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Anyone using the Pew Bible have the page number on that? 843, page 843 in the Pew Bible. Thank you. So we're going to read this passage, pray, and then see what God has to say to us. Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, we place ourselves at the mercy of your Holy Spirit to come and to open our minds and to open our hearts to understand what it is you are saying to us as we hear this text. Holy Spirit, do come. We open ourselves to you. We lift our hearts and minds to you. Lord Jesus, come and be present and speak, for we pray it in your mighty name. Amen. Sibling rivalry is as old as the hills, is it not? For as long as families have existed, there has been tension between brother and brother, sister and sister, brother 
and sister. What comes to mind for me from my own life is the backseat of our 1989 dark silver Toyota Camry. Yeah, there it is. It's boxy and it's beautiful. I can still remember the smell of those fuzzy polyester seats. And the reason this comes to mind is because the backseat of that car so often became a sibling war zone for my brother and I. I remember my mom telling me the story of once when my brother was teasing me and teasing me and teasing me. He, he was, he's three years older than me, so he's at that like perfect age to tease. And so he was egging me on, and I'm not sure exactly what he was doing, but he was doing it in that way that only an older brother can. And after a few minutes of this, as my inner kettle was heating up and starting to boil, my mom looked in the rearview mirror at the perfect moment to see a fist, my fist, just flying through the air to catch my brother on the cheek. And that put an end to it. My parents didn't even say a word. It was almost like, yep, he had that coming. Andrew responded, let's move on. And I imagine they were chuckling silently to themselves. Well, in our passage today, Martha welcomes Jesus into her home and her home quickly becomes the stage for a sibling war. And we're gonna consider what we learn from this story in a, about our own walk with Jesus by better understanding this scene where we see the sibling rivalry at play. And, and I wanna kind of use this question as an entry point. I wanna use the question of why does Martha lose it? Why does Martha explode like I did in the backseat of the Camry? And don't get me wrong, she does explode. Think about it. For Martha to walk in and interrupt the teacher. For Martha to come and confront the teacher with that accusation, don't you care? For Martha to then order the teacher, tell her to help me. She was ticked. But what caused her outburst? The obvious reason is one that we probably have already heard before, that she's been left to do all the work, right? And, and Mary, her sister, isn't lifting a finger to help her. And so she, end, she embarks on that downward spiral that's all too easy to embark on, of resentment and sourness from a wise and she helping me. Can you relate? How often do we fall into complaining about how much work we have to do in comparison with those around us? Some of us battle this tendency every day. If I'm honest, I know I do. We can feel for Martha, right? That she feels abandoned. Maybe she feels unappreciated. But this actually isn't the main reason for her outburst. The main reason Martha is so upset is less obvious to us because we're hearing it from our culture. We need to get into Martha's culture. What are we missing? Why is she really so upset? In that culture, as in many cultures today outside of North America, male and female roles are really clearly defined. Men in that society had all the power. They ran the show. And women 
didn't have the freedom that they do today. And houses were also divided. The household was divided into male space and female space, right? There were invisible but real boundaries of honor and respectability. So men didn't go into the kitchen and women didn't go into the public rooms, especially when men were talking and holding converse, and probably even more especially when there's a rabbi, a teacher, a distinguished guest with his disciples. For men and women to sit down together and just hang out didn't happen. And even more, notice how Mary is sitting at his feet. Now we might hear that and think, ooh, that's an image of, you know, servitude. So it's appropriate that a woman would do that, but it's not an image of submission. To sit at a rabbi's feet was a male role because it meant you were a disciple. To sit at a rabbi's feet meant you were taking on that role of disciple. So in Acts 22, verse three, Paul is talking about his history and he said, I grew up at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a well-known rabbi in his day. And when Paul says, I grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, he's not saying I was his servant. He's saying, I was his disciple. Gamaliel discipled me. And so Mary hasn't just crossed that boundary into male space. She has the pluck to act as if she's a disciple. And so when we read verse 39, it should make us all gasp. (gasps) Verse 39, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Thank you. Okay, someone's awake. Got your caffeine in you? Yes, this should make us gasp, unthinkable. And every moment that Mary is is in that room with Jesus, acting as if she's a disciple is just egging Martha on. What does she think she's doing? Who does she think she is? Does she have no shame? She's dishonoring our household. What a pretender. She can't be a disciple of Jesus. She belongs in here with me. Her outburst certainly comes from that lack of help, but even more from Mary's lack of shame. And her, her kettle boils over. Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Let's look at Jesus's response. Look at verse 41. And first of all, notice that there is mercy for Martha. Martha, Martha. It's saying her name twice. That's affectionate. It's kind, it's gentle. Martha, Martha, he's not angered by her interruption and even her accusation. And what he does is he he invites her to consider her priorities. You're worried and upset about many things. There's so many distractions taking up your time and your attention and your care but few things are necessary. Indeed, only one. I want you to notice that movement from the many to the one. Many distractions, few necessary things, one essential thing. 
Jesus is making a point about her priorities. She's all worked up about things that don't ultimately matter. And, and the pressing need of the moment isn't so much to prepare a meal for Jesus and his disciples. It's what? There's, a, there's an essential thing that she is missing. There's an essential thing that she is missing in the midst of her distractions. What's the one essential thing? What's the one essential thing? Well, we see it in verse 39. It's what Mary has chosen. To sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his word. To sit and listen. Isn't that so simple? Isn't that a, a beautiful picture of part of, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? After all, how can he be our teacher if we don't listen to him? It's an essential part of that student-teacher relationship. It's an essential part of the Christian life to sit and listen. And, and we might call this the contemplative side of Christianity. Um, you know, there, there is this, this call to, to absorb the words of God and take them into us. And I just want to say, sometimes you've maybe heard this story used in a way that, that belittles action, right? That says, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. <laughs> and that kind of pits action against um, contemplation as if, you know, the key to the, the Christian life is to be ultra spiritual and escape the world and all your responsibilities as you meditate upon higher spiritual realities. Ever heard any currents of that? I have. It's bad interpretation that leads to bad theology. That's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't saying that Martha's bad and we need to be like Mary. That's not what Luke is saying either. This is a prime example of our need to read passages of, of the Bible in their context. Look at your Bible in verse 37. The verse right before this passage. What is Jesus' final command to the lawyer he's been talking to about love of God and love of neighbor? What does Jesus say? Go and do. Go and do likewise. That's also a key part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so whatever this passage means to us, it doesn't mean that action is bad because Jesus has just told this man to go and do. <laughs> we need to hold these two things together uh, with action and contemplation. N.T. Wright rightly observes that without the first, you wouldn't eat. And without the second, you wouldn't worship. Let's never pit these against each other. We need both of them in the Christian life. He's not saying action is bad, contemplation is good. He wants both to be part of our lives. And guess what? True Christian spirituality is not faith that escapes the responsibilities of life. Do you hear me? True Christian spirituality is not a faith that flees the responsibilities of life. It's a faith that bestows resilience in the midst of them. It's a faith uh, where we go deeper in Jesus and he sends us deeper into the world to be close to those who are hurting to minister his grace 
and love there. What this story is doing is Jesus is setting his sights on unhealthy activism, okay? Unhealthy activism, because our activism, our drive to do and get things done can be unhealthy when our priorities are not straight. And it can be also be unhealthy when we're neglecting our need to sit and listen, to rest in Christ and listen. And in this moment of sibling rivalry, Jesus vindicates Mary. You see that? Okay, so for Mary to be doing all this stuff, that's one thing, but then for the teacher to say no, she's chosen the right thing. She's chosen the better thing. Wow, huge. Jesus welcomes her into that male space and welcomes her to be his disciple. And that's also what Jesus wants for Martha. Martha always, often gets the short end of the stick, but she deserves a lot of praise here. Her leadership in the home, her, her welcome of Jesus, her desire to serve and honor Jesus, it's just that she's not recognizing the need of the moment to sit and rest in Jesus and, and to take his words into her. Okay, so now I want us to think about what this means for us. What does this mean for you and I sitting here on a snowy winter day in Toronto in 2020? This story has a word to say about our work. And it's through that word sit. Sit. How is that a word about our work? <laughs> right? How, how does this notion of resting intersect with the responsibilities of our daily lives. Notice in verse 40, the word work. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work? That word for work there is used in the New Testament to talk about work, both in a religious setting, but also in common daily life settings, like here in Martha's home. How do they come together? How does rest in work come together for us? Because let's be honest, in your mind, they're probably opposites, right? Like, um, I rest when I'm not at work. And when I'm at work, I am not resting. <laughs> so how do they come together? Well, rest can be a posture that we bring into our work. And, and to do this, we need Jesus to 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 show us his good news, we need the gospel of Jesus to deal with us on this crucial question. Where does my worth come from? Where does your worth come from? So many of us find our worth, our value in our work. We hunt for approval. We, we frenetically compete with others to get a leg up. And it's clear that, that underneath all the work that we're doing, there's something lurking in our hearts, right? That's anxious and insecure because at some level, we've bought the lie that our value is attached to our usefulness. Our, that our value is attached to our usefulness. And when you believe that, there's no rest. Because you're constantly trying to carry a burden 
that you can't carry and you weren't made to carry. Tim Keller explains it well. He says, if we can experience gospel rest in our hearts, if we can be free from the need to earn our salvation, and I would insert there to prove our worth through our usefulness, if we can be freed from the need to earn our salvation through our work, we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us, restores our perspective, and renews our passion. Gospel rest comes from that one essential thing. Our union with Jesus and our ongoing communion with him. It comes from knowing with unshakable conviction that my worth doesn't depend on what I can do for God or for my family or for my workplace, but on what God has done for me. In creating me in his image and redeeming me through the cross of Jesus. We need to know this. And when that good news sinks in and starts to make its way into your life, into your family, into your workplace, the gospel frees you from your work because it shatters that lie that your value is attached to your usefulness. You will find a new freedom in your work, uh, from your work, but it also frees you in your work because your sense of worth is anchored in Christ and what he's done for you before you did anything productive or valuable for him. So, so you can actually work with joy and you can actually work from a sense of, I'm not trying to earn anything here. I'm gonna be rooted in my relationship with Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna work in his joy. We need to know the fact of the gospel and apply it to our work. That's how we'll begin to experience this kind of gospel rest, the sitting, even when we're not physically sitting, the, the resting of our souls in Christ. I think we have the time for this. I just wanna give you a very practical thing, a very practical thing for your workplace because often you feel, man, when I'm at work, you know, nine to five, I don't have time to do any kind of spiritual thing. There's actually a very ancient practice called breath prayer breath prayer that the church has been practicing for millennia. This is not new agey, touchy feely stuff. This is real. And guess what? At work, you need to breathe. You know, you don't need to take a break to breathe. And what breath prayer is, is you, you just take a short phrase or sentence and you pray that prayer to the rhythm of your breathing, like one syllable per breath could be something as simple as Jesus, thank you. And you just do that as you breathe. It takes 10 seconds to do it once. And what, what you're meant to do is to repeat it until you feel that sense of peace and that awareness of the Lord's presence coming on you. You could say, Lord, give me wisdom. Holy Spirit, come and refresh me. I want to commend the practice of breath prayer for you. At first, it will seem weird. You're like, this is taking way too long. I, I've taken like 15 seconds to say four words, but guess what? That's the point. It's meant to rub against our tendency to go, 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 and not take a single thought for God in the course of our day. 
And you might up com compiling your own kind of core list of prayers that you pray throughout your day or as you encounter different situations. I believe that the Christian life is one in which we serve Christ in all things, no less in our workplace. This is a spiritual practice that is so simple, you can take it with you anywhere and it can attune you to the presence of God with you, okay? Now, what Jesus is saying in these verses about our work is especially important for those of us who have a tendency to be very active. I mean, there are some of us who move at warp speed compared to the rest of us. You're like the Energizer Bunny. God has gifted you with a capacity to just go, go, go and push yourself the way the rest of us cannot be pushed. And I just wanna say that God has made you the way you are and that's a gift. But the, the shortfall of that or the area where you can get into trouble is that you start to, to leave God out of the picture and you're so gifted, you have so much energy that you start to think, man, I can just do all this stuff. I don't need God. That's that unhealthy activism. And what we're, what we're seeing in this passage and what the gospel really tells us is that God doesn't want so much what you can do for him. He doesn't so much want your productivity, your money, your piety. He wants you. He just wants you. And that can be hard to believe sometimes when we're just caught up in what we can do and what we have to do. To rest and know that the Father wants us. And let's be honest, folks. Like, I'm willing to wager that God has a much higher view of us than we do. That the thought that God would just want you somehow unsettles you because you think there's no way he just wants me. God knows how screwed up and broken you and I are. But he also knows what he made us to be. He loves us deeply and he already can see what will become. He can already see the glory of our redeemed selves in his son, Jesus. And he is passionate about bringing us to that point. So know that he wants you. Maybe the word you need to hear and follow through on today is sit and listen. Hear that first voice of love speaking to you, drawing you into relationship. And if that feels totally foreign to you, please just take God at his word. That he wants you. And he loves you. This is a word to us to abide in Jesus and do our work and carry out our responsibility from that place of resting in him. I wanna focus on the second thing, the word that Mary does. So, so she sits, but she also listens. And for us, this is a word about our distractions. It's a word about our distractions. That word listen is key for us. Uh, it doesn't just mean here, as in, you know, let sound waves come into your ear. In the Bible, the word listen includes the idea of obedience. As in, let the message of Jesus 
come in through your ears and sink into your mind and in your heart? And would it impel you to follow through on what he's saying to you? Would it impel you to obedience? That's what the word listen means in the Bible. And so the question I want us to consider this morning is, is are you listening? Are you listening? Martha wasn't listening. Why? She was distracted. As a disciple of Jesus today, how are you distracted from listening? We live in an age that some have called the age of anxiety. Have you heard that before? That this is the age of anxiety. Martha was anxious in her day, but she didn't have Instagram or Pinterest. You know, she didn't have all the pictures of everybody else's perfect dinner party streaming into her feed, crushing her with this sense of her own inadequacy. She didn't feel the need to post her life on the internet to see who would validate and affirm her through the like button, right? But we do. And it's crushing so many of us. And it is definitely crushing the world around us. Technology is a tool that enables us to listen to so many voices, right? To get so much content, opinions, and trends. And let's be honest, it's not just coming at us as if, you know, the big bad world of technology and social media are to blame. It's just having its way for me. I'm just going with the flow. No, we're letting it in. We make choices to allow these voices into our houses and into our heads, there are thousands, millions, billions of voices out there. But are we listening to Jesus? Now, real discipleship means sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his words. Who are you listening to? In October 2019, the Barna Group released findings from a study that they had been conducting about screen time in today's teenage and young adult population. And they did it among churchgoers and non-churchgoers. And here's what they found. Um, that per year, the typical 15 to 23-year-old at that time, they would now be about 18 to 26, spends 2,767 hours using screen media. Just to give you a comparison, there are only 8,760 hours in a year. So that means that just under a third of the year is spent on screen media. Of that time, the, the, the 2,767 hours... 291 hours were spent on spiritual content among churchgoers, and then even less among non-churchgoers, 153 hours. We could say a lot about this, but the one thing I just want you to see is that in a digital age, there is more distraction. There are more voices competing with the voice of Jesus in your life than ever before. And the voices aren't just out there, they're in your pocket. They're in your earbuds, right? They're in your bed with you at night when you're surfing the web. They are so close to us and we've allowed them to be so close to us. And this is a huge barrier to real discipleship. Here's um, one quote from this report. They say the number of hours they spend connected, learning and being discipled in a close-knit church community 
is now a drop of water in the ocean of content pouring out of their screens. What's that saying? Is we are being formed relative to what we're taking in from our screens, we are being formed so little in comparison in the church in in a real face-to-face relationships that it's like a drop of water in an ocean. And if that's true in your life, and, and you know, statistics only go so far. This is personal. But if that trend of giving Jesus so little airtime in our lives is true, that of all the things teaching and forming us, if Jesus' word is like a drop of water in the ocean, are we really going to develop a resilient faith? Are we going to develop a resilient faith that's needed for today? I wonder. The other thing that I want to add is that most of the spiritual content that we take in, I'm willing to wager, is secondhand. By that I mean it's somebody talking about Jesus, right? Um, it's, it's an article. It's uh, a Bible project video. It's a podcast. Um, you know, it's Christian TV. It's our daily bread. It's a devotional. And I'll be the first to say that those things all have value, right? I hope you're listening to me right now. And I actually believe that, that, that in the preaching moment, we are hearing from Jesus. And if you're listening on our podcast or website, I hope this blesses you. But I also want to say that listening to other people talk about Jesus does not replace our need to sit and listen with Jesus firsthand. And honestly, that probably scares some of us To be alone with the Lord might be a bit unsettling. That's what real discipleship entails. All that secondhand content is good to to shore up and and add insights, but we've got to have that primary connection to the Lord for ourselves. When we come before him with our Bible open and our hearts and minds prayerfully lifted to him. That's how we do it, right? Jesus isn't here today um, like he was with Mary and Martha physically there, but we have an even greater advantage. His spirit has been poured out and his personal presence is with us to give us understanding as we sit at his feet and open his word. And we do this primarily. There's, there's so many ways God can talk to us, but we do this primarily through a discipline. And let me say it is a discipline, a discipline and rhythm of prayer and scripture reading. By the way, there is a drawback to reading the Bible on your phone. (laughs) Say I'm reading Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, ping. Ooh, Samantha's having a party, nice. (laughs) Right, (laughs) The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord. Ping. Oh, Jimmy, those colors are not working for you. (laughs) I mean, how how many of us honestly put this thing into airplane mode when we read our Bible app? In fact, most Bible apps need to have access to Wi-Fi or data. I know, I've tried. I want to introduce you to a historical artifact 
which for some of you might seem just like totally ancient, real paper and ink on a page. Do you hear that? I love it when we open the Bible and you can hear the rustling of pages on Sunday morning. It lets me know, yes, we are not entirely living in the internet. We are embodied creatures. And these pages are full of God's word for you. Just waiting to draw you into his story. Turn the little glowing rectangle off. Leave it in another room. Get with Jesus to hear his gospel, even for 15 minutes. I bet you most of us don't even do that a day. 15 minutes, right? I'm seeing people slowly like slide their phone back into their pocket. I'm not saying it's all bad, guys. I'm just encouraging you to have undistracted time with the Lord because the truth is many of us are more prone to be social media followers than Christ followers. Uh, We're so connected to everything else in the world that we ignore the one essential thing, our connection to Jesus. So don't settle for other people's words about Jesus. He wants you at his feet. He is the only mediator. He is the only go-between between God and humanity. And you and I have direct access to the Father through Christ in his spirit. Why wouldn't we enter into that? Don't allow anything to come between you and that precious connection to God. It's not lost on me that time is at a premium in our lives. Some of us carry huge pressures. I think especially of those of us who who work two, maybe three jobs, I think of the single parents among us. My mom was a single parent for a good portion of my teen years. I know the pressure and the stress that that can put on you. Some of us are working 80 hours a week. Many of us come home after work only to find more work, dishes, dinner, more dinner, laundry, cleanup, what have you, right? It's like the work never ends. And some of you are are just new to Canada and you're just trying to get your foot in the door, scrambling, trying to find any kind of work you can lay your hands on. I get that. I understand the feeling that we don't have enough time. There's two things I wanna say. I think we could all grow in the art of eliminating distraction. We could all grow in the art of eliminating distraction to give priority to the one essential thing. And here's the other thing I wanna say. We always make time for what matters most to us. We always make time for what matters most to us. And being a follower of Jesus should change what matters to you. If not immediately all in one moment, then gradually, right? As you get to know God and the ways of his kingdom. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter three. He says, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, can't, I consider, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value, notice that word value, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, when Jesus had gotten hold of Paul's life, such a revolution took place. 
that completely reoriented his priorities and values to the point where knowing Christ had become more precious to him than anything else and more crucial to him actually fulfilling his life calling than anything else. It wasn't a distraction, it was the main thing. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's the word of God who became flesh in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to rescue us from evil, to forgive our sin, to bear the penalty, our penalty in judgment and to set us free and heal us in every way, to reconcile us to the Father and not just us, the entire world. He's not only our teacher, he's our savior and he's our Lord. And let me just announce to you this morning, whether you believe it to be true or not, that nothing surpasses the value of knowing him. Will you pray with me?